Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to FT Science, our new weekly podcast, packed full of exciting stories from the world of research. One of the show's regular features will come from Washington, D.C., home of the research magazine Science. We'll hear from them later about the big research news of the week, the decoding of the Neanderthal genome, and the discovery that all modern Europeans and Asians carry a little bit of Neanderthal blood. Here in London, of course, the political parties are still wrestling with the aftermath of Thursday's general election. While science didn't play a big role in the campaign, and it hasn't exactly dominated policy discussions about who's going to form the next government, the main parties have all made clear that they appreciate the importance of supporting research for the sake of future economic growth. There is a reasonable prospect that the government's science budget will be protected from the worst of the coming public spending cuts. From a personal point of view, the saddest thing about the results was the unexpected defeat of Evan Harris, the Liberal Democrat science spokesman and, as far as supporting science was concerned, undoubtedly the most energetic and forceful member of the last House of Commons. I myself watched the UK election results in Chicago, where I was attending the Bio Convention, the world's largest biotechnology meeting. It's a vast, sprawling event which draws thousands of people from around the world. For example, the Australian state of Queensland alone brought almost 100 people to Chicago. Anna Bly, the Premier of Queensland, Explain to me why they've all come. Queensland has been attending bio now for 12 years and we've always had our delegation led by either a Premier or Deputy Premier at senior political level because this is a very important part of our economic strategy. It's one of the central driving forces of our agenda in a state like ours that's had a very long and substantial dependence on uh, coal mining, uh, tourism and agriculture. Uh, While they are all important uh, foundations of our economy, Our responsibility is to diversify that economy and to ensure that it's ready to take advantage of the opportunities of the 21st century. So biotech, uh, we believe, is one of the forces that will drive prosperity and thriving economies, and we want to be part of it. Anna Bly's most exciting announcement at Bio was an agreement between her state and various American organisations to develop a new generation of biofuels for use in jet engines. We're very excited uh, by the new partnership we're forming uh, with uh, some of the biggest 
global players in the aviation industry, uh, Boeing and Virgin, as well as our universities, together with Amaris, one of the largest clean energy biotech companies in the United States. That partnership, what they'll be doing is an initial allocation of $3.5 million into the beginnings of a project that was could see jet fuel developed from a number of other sources, including algae, yeast and sugar. This is world-class, exciting, cutting-edge research that could actually change the way the world undertakes jet travel. So I think that's a pretty exciting thing globally. John Tracy, chief technologist at Boeing, takes up the story. If it all works out with biofuels, uh, when you consider the full CO2 life cycle, we believe that you can get somewhere between a 50 and 80 percent reduction in overall CO2. We have to determine which the most efficient means of production is for the biofuel feedstock that has the least impact on the environment, produces the, the highest quality fuel at the lowest price. That's really the point of the work we're doing here is to determine those things. We've already had four flights where we've demonstrated the ability of commercial airplanes to use these bio-based fuels as just drop-in fuels without any change to the airplane at all. You can use them today. So the only issue is having sufficient production quantities to, to fly. Another big story at Bio was the way scientists are exploiting the very encouraging discovery made just a decade ago that we continue to make new brain cells throughout our lives. A pioneer in this field of neurogenesis is a San Diego company called Brain Cells Inc. Its chief scientist is Carolee Barlow. Humans have the ability to form new brain cells in an area of their brain called the hippocampus. And the exciting thing about this is it, it begins to explain why it is that we can continue to adapt and readapt to our environment without losing information that we already had gained. And neurogenesis is likely an important mechanism for us during our adulthood to really integrate so many things from the environment and learn how to move forward. The first area that we as a company have been focusing on are in patients who have mood disorders, both depression and anxiety. If one considers what depression and anxiety are, think of a patient who is feeling depressed or anxious. Often you're saying to that person, well, why are you depressed or anxious? Things are going well for you. But they don't seem to understand that. that doesn't, they don't feel that way. By stimulating this process of neurogenesis, we hope that it's going to improve the ability of that portion of the brain to function so that they can re-understand or rethink their environment and in some way allow them to help uh, themselves get, get through this depression and to start thinking about things in a way that you, uh, you or I would be seeing the environment. That was Carolee Barlow, Chief Scientist at Brain Cells, Inc., And I think we can look forward in the future to a lot more exciting applications of neurogenesis to treat brain diseases from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's. And now to our regular feature from Science Magazine. This week we hear from Robert Frederick about the Neanderthal genome and the way Neanderthals interbred with our human ancestors. This is Robert Frederick with this week's Science Magazine segment for the Financial Times. 
It's been more than a century since Neanderthal fossils were first discovered, and so far, scientists could compare only the shapes of Neanderthal fossils to the shapes of our own bones, to tease out the differences between ourselves and our closest relatives. Now, in the May 7th issue of Science, Svante Pabo and colleagues report the first draft of the Neanderthal's genome, meaning that scientists can now compare genomes, too. Pabo is director of the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, and he and his team did just that, comparing the Neanderthal genome to the genomes of both modern humans and modern chimpanzees, our closest living relatives. And the things that are unique to Neanderthals in the genome, we actually don't trust that much because we've sequenced to very low coverage and we have special chemical problems with the DNA in the old fossils. So anything where the Neanderthals differ both from modern humans today and from chimpanzees, we at this point don't yet trust fully. But where the genomes do match up, researchers have identified several variations that suggest differences in modern humans' skin, cognitive function, and metabolism, among other things. But there wasn't really a smoking gun. Sarah Tishkoff is a geneticist at the University of Pennsylvania. So there wasn't any particular gene that they could say, yes, that is the gene, or those are the variants that distinguish modern humans from Neanderthals and make us uniquely modern human. At least not yet, Tishkoff says. And one reason may be because Neanderthals are not that different from us. Again, Neanderthal project leader Svante Pavo. So for many parts of the genome, I am closer to Neanderthal than what you would be, and if we go further down the chromosome, you might be closer to the Neanderthal than I am. So what the researchers did was to look at averages across the genome and compare them to five modern human genomes that the team also sequenced. What they report is that all non-Africans have some Neanderthal ancestry. Well, it's very surprising for me. I, in terms of Neanderthals and modern humans, I've never taken the view that they couldn't have interbred. Chris Stringer is a paleoanthropologist at the Natural History Museum in London. But I've certainly taken the view that it was a very low level of interbreeding, trivial if you like. So a level of perhaps around 2%, which is a possibility from this data, is quite a high figure. That's about one fiftieth of the genome. But researchers don't yet know whether the parts of the Neanderthal genome that do appear to be in non-Africans contribute anything useful to the modern human genome. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Robert. We look forward to hearing from you again next week. And that's all we have in this show. Next week, among other things, we'll be talking about stem cells, and we'll be joined by my colleague, Andrew Jack, who's going to visit the World Health Organization in Geneva. Our guest in the studio will be Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the UK Science Council. All that's left for me now is to thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.